happy Thanksgiving, just I'll make sure you take a few moments today to be thankful. Just be thankful. I, I know that we should be a people that's always thankful. We're in a, we want to be a culture of thanksgiving. But today in particular, just be thankful. Thankful for family or thankful for all the things that God has done for you. I personally want to be really thankful for one thing. I really, I'm really thankful for God's word. Uh, Psalm 18 verse 30 says, As for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless, and he shields all who take refuge in him. His words are flawless. And I want you to think about that as we go into God's word today. And it's a great segue because we're going to go into talking about, uh, we're going through 1 Corinthians. We're actually, our series title is called uh, The Antidote of a Gospel-Centered Life. And I explained a little bit of why we're talking about this. And to be honest, as we're, it's a great segue because we're going into 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians is a, is a letter by the Apostle Paul to a church he had planted. And from the outside, this church looked like it was actually had much going for it. Uh, it was living in a city that was a hub, a center of culture and sports. Uh, it had a, an economic system that was just par none to any in that time. It was very vibrant. The church, though, was doing, from all looks, very doing well. It had people men, uh, attending their services. People were getting saved. Uh, it had lots of spiritual gifts, so it looked really healthy. However, the reality that there was still stuff that the church was dealing with. In fact, how many of you know that church can be messy? And did you know that we are broken people? And that often we still have a lot of brokenness. And this is what Paul is trying to address. He's trying to deal with this church. That, ha- In fact, I would be honest, this church is probably the most messed up in all of the New Testament. Of all the churches, of all the things, this one is like, whoa, this takes the cake. Uh, because I'll give you an example. Uh, as Paul or Aaron was sharing last time, there was divisions in the church. There were people trying to oust Paul from his leadership. Uh, people thought it was cool to worship at the temples and participate in the worship of demons. Like, they could do that. That's okay. Uh, and men actually were going to prostitutes and had a theology that if it was okay. And it was... It was actually far from what you would call a healthy church. Uh, Paul says this in chapter 3, because I'm going to be coming into chapter 5 and 6, but he said this, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Church was messy. This church was not doing so great. And now I love it because then I get to go and say, oh, that's not me, right? That's not us. And yet I think the challenge is often God does still want to address the messiness and the things that we can have or work through. And that's what this gospel is about or this epistle is about. Because see, what would happen was, they'd been saved by Jesus. This church had been saved by Jesus, but the problem was they were going back to their old practices. And they were actually being influenced by the culture that was in Corinth. The culture was acting like a poison, and it was killing the church. And so, Corinthians is actually very relevant today. How many of you know that we struggle 
at sometimes how to be in the world but not a part of it. How many of you struggle with that thought right there? How do I share the gospel to neighbors who don't know them, but we are so different, and I, how do I participate with this? How do I love them? And yet also hold on to God's truth. And I started off talking a couple weeks ago just to give us an intro and hopefully laid out, Winnipeg is actually very similar to Corinth. And if you look at some of the things there, I would say, wow, I actually think we kind of would be, if we were in ancient times, we would be like the church in Corinth. They're struggling at least with the culture. And the first antidote of the gospel is, is this. Paul just saying, don't live for yourself. You've been given gifts. Use those gifts to bless. and to, All the gifts have been given to you. And that's the first antidote. And then uh, Aaron shared last week how what has happened is this, is we also have to deal with another poison. But the antidote for him was, who are you following? For us, we're to follow Christ and we're to make him the focal point always. And that's, that's a gospel-centered life is it's just, Lord, I want to make, put my eyes on you. How many of that's just the challenge all the time saying, God, can I just get my vision on you? And not on the worry, not on stuff, not on things. I know that encroaches on us, but also, who am I following? Who am I imitating? And who do I want to be like? Wow, Jesus. And so we come today into 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6, and I'm going to put 5 and 6 together, although you've got to pray for me because, man, this is going to be a, 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 a slug. Because we obviously can't go through all of the scripture because we want to make sure we're going through, but this one is a toughie. Um, you see, I love... I, as I come into 1 Corinthians ch- chapter 5 and 6... What I'm going to find is Paul is going to address a poison. And the poison is this. It's of a, of a pleasure-driven society. And, and it's saying that God does not have anything to say in our sexuality. Let me repeat that. It's a poison of a pleasure-driven society that's saying God does not have any say in our sexuality. But the antidote that he will introduce, though, is this thing of how do you avoid that culture as he comes along and says, but listen, this is your antidote. Walk in the light. And he, it's a terminology we use in First John, and I'll explain, but here we go. Now, first of all, I wanted you to know, to know, I believe that the word of God is totally unique in its authority, its integrity, and purpose. How many of you believe that? It's totally unique. It's authority. It has right to speak into our lives. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, uh, Paul saying to a young man, he says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is God-breathed. Okay, I want you to think that. Because when I get to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6, it gets really rough. These are actually passages that are not easy to preach from. Why? Because they counter so much our culture. But it actually is about dealing sometimes even with us as a church. So here's the challenge is when I believe in reading the whole scripture, I can't avoid 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6. I can't because I want us to make sure that we know the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth and to live by that truth but to know that that truth is also 
combined with grace. Jesus was full of grace and truth. And Paul really gets, why it's so tough is because he's going to address something that was really crazy happening in this church. Paul has to address the church because they were celebrating, actually, a guy who was having an affair with his stepmom. And the challenge were, there were actually people in the church actually being supportive of this. It's saying it's okay. So, you're okay with me? Ready with? I know it's, it's, it's a crazy one. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to read the text. If you have your Bible, please follow along. I always encourage you to read for yourself. God will highlight things. But if you're brand new or new here, I do put the scripture up here for people who are not normal to, hey, I, you bring a Bible here. Yeah, okay. Here we go. Chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Though from absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I've also already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you, already are, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I just want to highlight that with truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, nor the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world. But I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is idolater, reviler, or drunkard or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person among you, from among you. Now, I read those scriptures and I'm going, whoa, that is super tough. Happy Thanksgiving. (laughs) These are super hardcore. And Paul is using these terms that I really don't like to use, like he's talking about judgment and removing people. He's using words that seem so opposite of love. And this passage actually fly against forgiveness and acceptance. And I just ask the question, okay, Paul, why are you so cranky then? Why are you talking about this? Why are you so adamant on this particular subject? And again, actually, if we were doing, most churches who are preached topical will never preach from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Why? It's offensive. It's a hard passage. Especially when it comes to our culture. But Paul is saying this because he's addressing a poison that had crept into the church. That God has not any say in any of our, in our life, but in particular sexuality. 
The idea that there is a right way to express sexuality and a wrong way is absolutely foreign to our culture. In fact, our culture is pushing against us if we say that. You agree? To say there's a right way for sexuality and a wrong way to sexuality is absolutely becoming a, 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 well, taboo. And I explain this by this. There's a guy named Christopher Hitchens. And Hitchin, Hitchens is, he, he makes an article in the New York Times. And he's, a, he's actually a modern skeptic. He's, he's really well known for his, some of his points that he makes, and makes. He's a skeptic, though. And he says this. The sexual ethic of Christianity is the worst feature of Christianity. In fact, but he even goes more pointed. I, I took a quote from him. He said this. Religion is man-made. Even the men who made it cannot agree on what their prophets or redeemers or gurus actually said or did. Still less can they hope to tell us the meaning of latter discoveries and developments, which were, when they began, either obstructed by the religion or denounced by them. And yet the believers still claim to know. Not just to know, but to know everything. Not just to know that God exists and that he created and supervised the whole enterprise, but also to know that he demands for us, from our diet to our observances, to our sexual morality. Now, again, that's Christopher Hitchens' Hitchens' opinion, which I think think he's kind of saying what I think a lot of people might think. But I will say this. He has a bit of misunderstanding, first of all, about the Christian worldview, and it's this. I don't think Christians, we claim to know everything. Do you claim to know everything? Uh, I don't know if he totally understands a Christian worldview because I actually, I don't believe that. I don't think we know everything. However, I will agree with this. I do believe that we were created. And therefore, as we have a creator, I believe a creator knows everything. And in fact, he even knows how we were built. And he can even tell us how we're built the best or how we're supposed to operate. Agreed? I, 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 I kind of feel that way. But again, this flies against our, our culture. And actually, I'll be honest, even my own flesh. Uh, my own flesh says, hey, it feels good. Why not? I'm just being really honest. Paul even said it in Romans chapter 7. The things I do not want to do, I do. There's something inside me, even my own heart, that says, wow, this would feel really good and, and this, but it drags me. Even though I know what I should do, I don't do that. It's Paul, the Apostle Paul, recognizing his own flesh was at war with, but no, God knows better. So the big idea of this whole 1 Corinthians, if I want you to think through this the whole time is this, it's kind of paralleled with Paul's talking to the Romans, where he says in Romans 12, He says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, the idea that we're all to be is to know Christ in this transforming power so that we're not living the way that we used to live. We live a different life that actually is redeemed and healed and sanctified. It's saved. It's the ability for us to love like we've never loved before, in love even properly. It's fulfilling to be in the world, but not a part of it. That's what we're after. 
I love your, your, your word, Terry, because that's what we're after. If, if we can somehow live in this world but not be a part of it so that we can show people how what it means that God so loved us that he comes to our brokenness, never gives up, and we are not wanting to ha- go back because it's so much better. Our kids growing up knowing that the world has nothing to compare compare to our God and his goodness. That even when you are feel like you absolutely have no hope, you have something. Even in the midst of, okay, my ear is like, and I feel like that. God's on the throne. When you're weak, he's strong and things like that. It's, I, do you believe he is the way, the truth, and the life? truth and he'll speak truth to us he's telling us the best way but it's to get life and the best life a life abundant a life that means i can persevere through suffering but i have a hope and a joy and peace so let's go on the the first thing he's going to talk about is this poison of a pleasure-driven society that says god does not have any say in our sexuality it's in verse five verse one i'm just going to start with there Paul says it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Hope. Now again, we want to mention this, that um, Paul had continued his ministry. He had set, he planted this church and he moved on saying, guys, continue, do your good work. And he gets a report. People come back and say, Paul, I'm just going to tell you what's happening in Corinth. And he hears this. And that report, obviously, he says, is not good. Uh, the word sexual moral here is the Greek word porneia, a form which we get the word pornography. It literally means to buy. Now, it, it's, just, it's not just meant for the context of prostitution. It, it actually has a deeper meaning. Porneia actually comes to the idea of treating someone as an exchange where you're getting something from them and not sharing with them the way God has set up sexuality. There's a right way. That's what he's saying. And anything outside of that becomes sexually immoral. Wrong. Now, imagine a culture, because I, I want to get you a picture of what it would be like for Paul saying this, saying, I hear there's this in your church. Well, no wonder. Look, think about it. Imagine a culture that their system is built on the temple of Aphrodite. Now, if any of you know who Aphrodite is, I said it really cool. Aphrodite. Just wanted to put that in there. Aphrodite. Do you know who the Aphrodite was? Well, she was the goddess of love. How many of you know the highest thing we could do is love one another? And everything is about love, right? The commandments. It even sounds very biblical. The greatest command, love. But Corinth was built on this particular worship. In fact, Corinth, you could find the cults of Egypt, Rome, Greece, like I said before, all the gods. But the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, was actually built on, it was called the Acroth Corinth. Acroth Corinth. It was a hill on top, a high place where their temple was built for the goddess of love. Now, when Paul came in the time, that temple had kind of fallen apart because they, they obviously had moved on and are working. There's so many different gods. But the, what he did say is that during the time, the thousand different uh, cultists from that were now in the city practicing. A thousand different people who worshipped Aphrodite. And with that meant all of the stuff that they brought. 
Think about the culture then of that city. It's a sexual revolution, man. The 70s had nothing on Corinth. In fact, I would say 19, or sorry, 2019 has nothing against Corinth. We are actually no different. Did you know there's no, no sin that's new under the sun? There's no, there's no sin. It's, it's not like we are worse than that. We actually have the same challenges that the church had. And Paul understood that. He was calling them, calling them out of this culture... Because his strategy was, he wanted to go to a place and share the gospel. The gospel was so powerful and transformative that the people who encountered it were set apart. They were different. They were different in how they lived. And living in that city, his hope was as they lived out their life different, they actually would affect the nations. Because Corinth was a port where people from the nations came and the gospel would be shared as they just simply lived differently. But here was the problem. Though they came to the saving knowledge of Jesus, the church had been saved, they wanted to have a Christianized version of what they were. They wanted to remain in the church, but they also wanted to do whatever they wanted sexually. That's what Paul's addressing. They wanted to just believe in Jesus, but not let that power transform them. And Paul is saying, I need to address this. You're stepping outside of the playing field. And I use, I like that. How many of you like sports? Like the idea of sports? If you are a sportsman, Kevin, you and I, we understand. What happens when you step outside of the playing field? Uh, What? You're now a spectator. Second of all, penalty. If you ever touch the ball when you're outside, you do something, you're not on the playing field. It's actually illegal. <gasps> I do that all the time when I was coaching guys playing basketball. Like, he's out of bounds. Loss of ball. Give us the ball. It actually has effect when you step out of the boundaries. I love that analogy because that's what God's basically saying. Now, but the, here's the thing is... Um, I want you to note something about this passage. He says something right away. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you'd need to go out of the world. No, I'm writing to you to associate with anyone who bears the name brother. Who's he talking about? He's, he's not talking. He's, and he says... Anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater or a viler, drunkard or swindler, you're not even supposed to eat with him. Now, he's not talking about the world. He's talking about us. And he's saying, Lord, he's trying to address the stuff that was happening, the messiness in the church. And I just want to make something very interesting in that list. He says, if you are a believer, a brother, and yet you have sexual morality, but he also says, and you have greed. I like it because this is what I find. How many of you think, well, if you're sexually moral, you are really bad. But if you're greedy, you're kind of here. And you know, if you're kind of, there's like this, but that's really bad. And, God, and Paul's actually saying, uh-uh. I don't play, God doesn't play that. He actually sees them both as sins and equally having the same challenge of going, if you're a greedy it's as much as being sexually immoral? Yeah, that's what Paul's saying. 
Well, it's challenging to ask for the scripture going, God, whoa, who's righteous? Who's righteous then? What do we struggle when we're dealing with things? Well, I love that because he's trying to say, listen, I'm not talking because sometimes we get hung up. We go, oh, the world's so bad and the world's doing this. And Paul's just saying, don't talk about the world. Just first talk about us. Because how is the world supposed to see something different? And that's why he's passionate. That's why he's so cranky. <gasps> he's cranky because he knows that how their, their lifestyle can affect the gospel. And that's a challenge. And he's saying, guys, you're, you're living outside the fence. And I, I think this, to be honest, how many of you like fences? How many of you like fences when you see something good on the other side? If you're like my wife, she loves it. She is a person like, got to have the rules, stick to it. She's a justice person. Any people like that? Got to do the policy? Got to Yes, thank you. Confession's good for the soul. My wife is like, no, it says, but if I see a little sign that says, do not touch, guess what happens to Norm? Thank God I have a wife. <laughs> I, Aaron is sharing this video we saw, a commercial, where, you know, what happens is, you know, that, that guy that he's staring, he's looking at this guy who's on the drums, and the old drums where the cymbal goes, tsh, 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 and then all of a sudden he stops, and he looks, and he goes, and he sticks his tongue as if he's, like, ready to see what will happen when my tongue gets squinted. Like, who thinks that way? But, yes, I think that way. <laughs> Don't touch it. <laughs> Hey, it's a frozen pole in the middle of winter. Want to lick it? Who has done that? <laughs> yeah, see? Anyway, praise God. Good for confession, anyway. Uh, J.K. Chesterton says, If you ever take a fence down, you should ask the question, why was the fence there in the first place? And this is counter to our culture that says, restriction by r- default is wrong. Do you believe God places restrictions in our lives for our benefit? Do you believe that? And Paul addressed, Paul is actually doing something. He's trying to address something that was in the church, and I'm going to call it, Paul is trying to address an open secret. And I stole this thought from Rob Belfort because I heard him say this message and I thought, that is perfect. How do you describe what was happening in 1 Corinthians? And he calls it an open secret. Well, what is an open secret? Well, an open secret is something that you're aware of in the family, but you're not sure how to address it. Ever have that? I'll I'll give you an example of of a biblical perspective. This guy, his King David, King David is king, and what happens is he, he decides one day as he goes out, he sees Bathsheba out on the, out on the, you know, portico or whatever, and this thing, he's looking down, he goes, oh, she looks beautiful. And so what he does, he takes her and he, and he, and he has, yeah, anyway. But she comes pregnant. Uh-oh. And now David has a problem because now how do I hide this thing? And so what he does is he tells, first of all, his servants, you know, maybe let go get Uriah and, and tell him to come home, okay? And then he says, oh, tries to get Uriah drunk. And Uriah, who's a soldier, who's a foreigner, says, no, no, I can't do that. And so he's like, this guy won't even, he won't go and be with his wife. How, how am I going to cover this? And so he finally goes, I, go, I, I can't do anything. So I got an idea. What we're going to do is I'm going to talk to Joab, my leader, and we're going to go to battle. And what's going to happen is this, we're going to put him at the front line and then we're going to kill him. And that's what happens. So David's like, hey, she now becomes pregnant. Hey, everything's great. I'll take her as my wife. It's all covered. That's actually not true. 
Because there were people that actually knew that this was going on. Think about the servants bringing Bathsheba. Oh, do you know what the King David brought? <laughs> or do you know what happened? Is suddenly he's having to deal with, um, as he's trying to you know, talk to people, hey, bring Joab to my, or Uriah to my house. Or, or, and then we'll party. And then he didn't. And then he goes, well, then Joab obviously must have known what's going on because he's like, you want me to what? You want me to attack the enemy? And, and yeah, and put him right at the front. Why? Now, in David's mind, he's thinking it's a secret, but it's actually an open secret until, and, and this is what I find interesting, is he probably justified. He said, I'm the king. And God, this guy's a foreigner anyways. He's just a soldier. I, I have a right to this, don't I? He was probably even justifying it. And probably other people said, yeah, he's not one of God's chosen people. Who cares? He's a king. And then Nathan the prophet comes along. And God's saying, wait a second, is that really, I want to expose this open secret, what you think is hidden. God loves to actually challenge us when we have those things that we think are hidden in the darkness because he loves us enough. I mean, the culture understands that. We, there's lots of open secrets. In fact, Paul's time, there was an open secret that was huge. Uh, the Emperor Claudius, which was actually at the time of Paul, happened in this. Emperor Claudius, uh, he became emperor because of a really weird story. His nephew was assassinated, so he became the emperor. Emperor of the Roman Empire, largest civilization of known time. But he, ha- he was a cripple and he had a stutter, so most people thought, ah, he's not going to count too much. But the crazy part about Claudius was his history with his wives. And I'm going to be honest, this is the weirdest one, but his, one of his wives, while Claudius was away fighting the Brits, Claudius, his wife, decided to do something because she was totally out of control with her body. Absolutely. Like, what, I don't know, culture? I don't know. But what happened was this, was Claudius' wife decided to have a challenge with the most notorious prostitute in the city of Rome. And challenge her to like a um, sex tournament, basically, I could say. I won't get details, I don't need it. And she won. But the crazy thing is, nobody, Claudius came back and nobody told Claudius that it happened. The emperor of Rome had no clue this happened. In fact, the only way he found out was eventually this woman decided to marry a lover and she married him invited her friends and, and, and told them that she's planning on actually killing Claudius and becoming, with this new lover, the, maybe rule Rome. It's at that point the friends think, maybe we should tell Claudius that she's not doing good things. Maybe we should let the secret out. That's scary, eh? That it gets to that place in a culture that we don't actually will address But that's what Paul was living in from the very t- highest of estates. Ever have an open secret in a family? Everyone knows, but you're not addressing the problem. Well, what pushes on us is this question. This is what I want you to think about when we're dealing with stuff in church because it's messy and we have stuff that we deal with. The question is, there are times when people have the right to know things. Do you believe that? In church, we know we, we can hurt people by the things we share. Did you know that? We can gossip and we can slander. 
And we're not supposed to do that. Now, just so you know what a definition between gossip and slander is, is gossip is when you're sharing stories about people that don't make a person look good because it's enjoyable. Slander is when you're sharing bad stories wanting to damage people. But there are times when people have the right to know. Did you know our our legal system recognizes this? Our legal system. If we know that a child is endangered or being abused, the law says it's illegal to not say anything. In fact, by not saying anything, you become liable. There are times when people have the right to know. Can I ask you this? In a marriage, do you think you have the right to know? Absolutely. I, I want to say this is the one thing I absolutely love. is I have a, a group of pastors who have encouraged me. The one thing is how I am supposed to be faithful to my wife. And I'm supposed to actually share and talk and be truthful with her. My wife can say, ask me any question. She can ask the questions. How are your, how's your fidelity? How are you doing with finances? How is your spiritual walk? Why does she have the right to ask me those things? Well, because we're, we're connected and we're one, and she knows that my decisions will actually have traversed effects on her. I was struggling one time, and I was really going through this thing, and I was really feeling really depressed and stuff, and the one thought that jettisoned me out of that, of losing hope and losing despair, is when I thought, what would this affect, how would this affect my wife and kids? To be honest, I was just going through some spiritual stuff. I was wrestling through, and the thought came into me, if I love God, and I love, but how is this going to affect my wife and kids? And it actually got me back into thinking about God and how he'd want me to operate. Because she would have the right to know. See, the reason we're addressing this is because when people told Paul what was happening in the church, Paul responds saying, I, I now know, and I have a right to know. But that flies against everything in our culture. Who has a right to know about your stuff? Who has a right to know especially about sexuality? Because at this thing, in our culture, who could possibly hold someone accountable to that issue? This is the most private aspect of a person. There's nothing more subjective. And it's linked to our identity. So how do we dare even address this? And who gives us the right Now, I think like this, it takes a lot of courage, but it's important for us to be able to operate like that, to know that this question, who has the right, when you're struggling with something, who has the right to know? As a youth pastor, this is, I found out this the long, hard way. Um, what I found out was this, I was dealing with some young people, and this uh, young person came and shared one time and said, you know, I'm struggling with, I'm having, I'm, I'm, I'm sleeping with this guy, and, and I'm like, oh, okay, you're, you're still a young person, like, And they said, yeah, I just know that I need to confess this. I need to share this, what's going on. I said, I thank you for sharing. That is so courageous. But then I said to them, by the way, I want to tell you something. You now have two weeks to tell your parents or I will do it. Oh, did they get mad? Oh, they were like, that's not why I came to tell you this. I just needed to get this burden off. I needed to confess. And I said, yeah, but... 
here's the problem. You know that God's telling you about confession but, and about purity, but here's the problem. There's another thing. How do you honor your father and mother? Don't you think they ought to know? And if you hold that in your heart, when we're talking about messiness in the church and things, when we ask and say, I want people to know because I believe they have a right, instantly you're not thinking about your rights, you're thinking about the other person. So when you are dealing with stuff, even sexual, even whatever, you have the ability to say, but I know it's not about my rights, I will share knowing if a person has the right to know. Will this affect someone else? And I love it because even in the Conquer series, this is something that they tried to reinforce in us. They kept reinforcing, saying, listen, at some point, the best thing you can do to get freedom is to actually share. But it's the toughest thing. Well, when we are in a community, we recognize that we're all affected by sin, and that's the point, is knowing that when we do this when we we have given people the right to address even confront us that's how we we remain different from this world and the final thing and I'm just going to really cruise really quick is the end of the gospel is walking in the light and he talks about in the scripture and I'm just going to really go fast because we recognize that we're all affected by sin but the antidote is walking in the light now flip it over there for me Andrew uh, I want to get to these scriptures because they're really crazy. He talks about what is sexual morality. He unlists it for him. And he talks about, do not be deceived, neither the sexual moral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. See, again, I don't like this passage. Because suddenly God is saying to us, there is a consequence for things when you do actions. Now, again, this idea of walking light, you can um, go through it over, Andrew. Keep going. 1 John chapter 1, 5-9 says, If we walk in the light as he is in light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we confess these things, we suddenly have fellowship with one another, but we're also clean. See, Paul is addressing the issue. Do you believe that when you go outside of the fence of sexuality, you have consequences? Or whatever. Is there a consequence when we disobey God? Because remember, he says greedy, swindlers, everything. He's just saying, if there is, there is a consequence. Now again, this will fly against our society. Paul is addressing something that isn't popular to think. But when you read the narrative of the Bible, we see that God actually does allow consequences in both our present life and the eternal life for the choices we make. He's righteous. Do you not know the the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? I'll give you an example of why I think this. It's in the narrative through the whole Bible because I was watching, I was listening to this pastor and he was sharing a testimony. It was really wild. He said, he was watching uh, The Prince of Egypt with his kids. Have any of you ever watched The Prince of Egypt? Yeah. He said he loved it. It was a great narrative. And he got to this place. He's watching with his 8 and 10-year-old. And they get to this place where, you know, where Moses meets God at the burning bush. Moses. 
You know, and he talks about this is holy ground, and he takes his shoes off, and he's like, oh. And, and the crazy part is, it's kind of, it's very ethereal and very like, oh, like, you know, it's pretty cool. And you're watching this thing, and all of a sudden, but he gets to the point when he says, Moses, I want you to go to, to my people, and I want you to deliver them from the, I've heard their cries. And Moses says, whoa, wait a minute, no, no, I can't do that. Uh, I, I. I, I've killed some of their children. I'm not good at speaking. You've got the wrong person. And all of a sudden, in this movie, it's like, boom! My God, it just gets real. Like, who made the tongue? Who made the mouth? Who made the blind to see? And you're like, Whoa! like it just went. Like, God got really jacked. It was really cool. <laughs> he got really jacked. The pastor, when he saw this thing, and he says, you know, who made the blind? Who made the deaf? Who did this? Is it not I? Now go. And 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 the, the eight year old daughter goes. Daddy, God seems like he's talking really mean to Moses. And the, and the pastor said, yeah, honey, why do you think that? Whoa, he must really try to say if he doesn't obey, he's going to be in trouble. <laughs> That's right, you listen. <laughs> and then they continued on in, the, in, the, in the, the show or the movie, and it gets down to the place where then she, they're watching this, and all of a sudden the angel of death comes in and starts killing the firstborn, and the, the eight-year-old says, Daddy, kids are dying. God's allowing them to die. What? Why is that, Daddy? Well, don't you realize that he gave all these other chances for them to listen and obey over and over, crazy opportunities, but they would not. And this is the consequence. There's a consequence to not obeying. Yeah, that's what the Bible says. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for the food. God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. You see, our theology is God, who is a loving father, cares enough to set up boundaries. And in particular, he's going to address sexuality because sexuality is where Satan wants to destroy the image of God. He wants us to conform to his satanic image of selfishness. But God created sexuality to bring joy. It's to be beautiful. And the enemy actually is attacking that first because as he mars this, he mars our image. And in fact, this one is the most devastating part about us as church. There is an appreciation. I want to say thank you. Aaron and and Kevin and Ron and thank you for holding me accountable how I treat my wife how I love you know what would be the most painful thing for this church if you suddenly found out I was having an affair with someone because it wouldn't just affect me it would affect all of you it hurt how do I trust anyone any time that something has happened that's the biggest pain that people have about the church is saying look what these people did to kids and did this in residential homes and that the church and they get it, it's brutal so do you wonder why God's getting Paul's cranky about this he says please walk in the light walk in the light and the grace of this is this when if you fail 
Now what? Deal with it, but what do you feel? This is important because Jesus is full of grace and truth. When I first came to Gateway, this was my hardest struggle was actually dealing with truth because I came from a different culture, a different church where pastors actually have to look like it's all together. I'll tell you why. I had a story of a friend, his name was, I don't even have to tell you his name. His, he, just, he was a youth pastor. He just came out of Bible college and he was single and he was at a church and he was ministering there. But what happened was this, is he actually confessed to having an affair with the secretary. What happened was this, is he didn't wake up one day, and we were good friends. I went and actually talked to him and said, what happened? Like, why did you go here? Like, everyone knows this is not really good. Like, what do you do? And he said, I didn't wake up one day and decide to have an affair. Nobody does. He said it was a progression. What had happened was this, is the secretary was, their, their marriage was struggling. And one day she came into the church and he saw her crying and he said, what's wrong? And she just shared, she was honest. And so what he did is he did like anyone. He just said, oh, and he prayed for her to bless her and help her. Well, the next time she came again because it was still struggling. And so this time he came and he gave her a hug to try to comfort her and be close and just be loving. Well, the next time it was a longer hug. And then the next time it was a longer embrace until the next time they remember when they first, it was like as they're embracing a kiss and that's all it took. He said, I didn't wake up to think this. I just was, didn't know how to process when I was struggling and when she was struggling. Well, when he did confess this to the church, guess what happened? The church said, thank you very much. You're no longer a youth pastor. You're no longer good to us. He still isn't in ministry. He's actually very hurt. He was the one that confessed. And what happened? How did the church respond to a person who confesses, walks in the light? Not with grace. When I first came here, I didn't know how to approach when the church, the pastor say, hey, what's going on in your life? Well, if I tell you, I'm going to get booted out. Well, God set me up. I didn't know when I was applying for this position, I went to Calgary to our Salt and Light Leaders Conference. And when I was there, I was sitting at a table and this gray-haired old guy came over. And he was like, how are you doing? And I started talking. And somehow, he was so loving, so fatherly, so kind, I just started telling him my life. In fact, I was telling him about all my fears of going, I'm actually going to this church in Winnipeg that I was going to be probably as the youth pastor. And I'm freaked out and I don't know if they're going to like me and all this stuff. And I started just diarrhea, vomiting, whatever you want to call it, verbal diarrhea is what I would call it that way. It all came out. Just like I did there. Sorry, I apologize. I just blah, 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 blah. Well, then all of a sudden, I, I, I go to this interview, and I'm looking as I'm talking about applying for this pastor, and I look over, and there's that little white gray-haired guy. He's an elder of the church. His name is Keith Miners. And first of all, he's prophetic, so he probably knew all my junk anyway. I am, there's no way I'm getting this job. They know all my garbage. I told them every single thing. How on earth? And somehow they let me be a pastor. That's the beauty of when you have a community that you can walk in light as he is in light. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you this morning for, Lord, as I just go over, this is a really hard passage, and I thank you that you told me, be strong and very courageous. Because, Lord, I I don't like addressing this issue. I don't want to. And, Lord, I feel like it's a no-go zone. And yet you say, God, as Paul said, I love you enough to ask the question, 
to be able to say what's going on in this area because it's so vital to us as we want to minister the gospel. Lord, we want to come to you as broken people. We want to say there is no, uh, there is no zone you're allowed to t- not allowed to touch. You're allowed to talk to us in particular about sexuality. Lord, I want to pray that you'd help us in this. That, Lord, today, if there are people that are struggling in the church, Lord, that today we say, God, by your grace, help us to be able to address and be able to have enough courage to say, Lord, I want to walk in the light. Help me. Lord, I thank you that when we do that, there's grace. Your grace is sufficient. Lord, I want to pray that we'd be a people that are welcoming those that are struggling with it. And Lord, we can also actually stand firm against a culture that is saying there is no right and wrong in sexuality. Lord, I want to pray a blessing over every person today that says, you have the right way, the best way. And the best testimony we have is how we operate towards our kids, how we operate towards our family, how we love our wives, Lord, how we are approaching our spouses or or how we're engaged to people how we're pure. We see you as the best and we want to live out that life in the world around. It's so crazy. Amen.